Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. One of the most persistent themes in this podcast has been the shift in the zeitgeist on the relationship between technology and democracy. Ten years ago, it seemed everyone in tech believed that the internet was fostering democracy. Today, however, more and more tech is, particularly some of the more idealistic pioneers of the digital revolution, see the internet as undermining democracy. And there are a few more idealistic digital revolutionaries than Peter Sunde, the Nordic co-founder of the file-sharing network Pirate Bay, a man who famously went to jail for his beliefs about free online content. Peter Sunde, the co-founder of Pirate Bay. Peter, you can't quite remember when you founded Pirate Bay or when it founded you, but you think it was around 2002 or three. What were you trying to do? Were you trying to democratize the web, the world? No. <laughs> That's a thing that, uh, to be honest, like we don't really remember when it was founded, who was part of it. The only thing we remember was that it was a fun project and it was no grand plans or anything about it but what was it what's your claim to fame why has it made you into a kind of digital celebrity up there with julian assange and edward snowden pirate became something rather than what it was and i, I think it became a community for people that didn't want um, the internet to become a place just for markets in the core group of pirate we were three different people that had three different political beliefs but i think that kind of what united us was that we wanted an internet that was controlled by the people and not by companies. And I think that struck a chord with people, even back at that time, when we saw that companies starting to take over the internet and controlling it more and more. So what does that mean, Peter, controlled by the people? Does that mean that people own the content on the internet? Does it mean that they were empowered? What were you trying to do? Empower people? Disrupt old industries? I think it was about not accepting that companies regulated what was the rules for the internet. We did a lot of promotions for people to vote in elections. We didn't tell people what to vote, but we wanted people to engage more. And I, I think that's kind of the core of it, that we wanted people to discuss the issues of intellectual property, which we saw as, at least I saw it as a way of controlling people and, and freedom of speech and access to information, all of these things that we were discussing back in that uh, time. 
essentially that was why Pirate Bay became much bigger than the other platforms that did the same. It was not just about the piracy, but it was about why we had piracy and why we wanted piracy. Now, if I was wearing a Hollywood studio hat or working for one of the big media companies as a lawyer, I might say, well, that's all very well talking about democracy, but all it really was was a front for mass larceny, people not paying for the music or the movies or the books that the media industry relied on. How would you respond to that? There's many responses to that. First of all, it's not that was not the interesting part of it. It was getting people to have access to this information and, and spreading culture as we do with libraries. That was our goal. And of course, there was a missing link of how to make sure that people could pay for it. Let's say that. But it, also, we needed to change kind of how you pay for information where you have all of the information in the world accessible. You can't pay a subscription fee of 50 euros for every newspaper you want to read because you're going to read one article in one of them and then you have 200 you read. So we saw that everything was very different. So we solved one of the problems with access to information and we discussed and said that now you have a problem that you need to find a business model that suits this if you want to have a business model. But it was not really our big interest in solving that. I, of course, started a company later, a project later, that tried to figure out how to do that. Which is flatter, which perhaps we'll come to later. Yeah. So you founded this, I don't know what you would call it, a company, a platform? It was a exchange. platform. Yeah, it's more of a community. So you, you built the technology, you, you acquired the URL. What did it actually mean to found or co-found Pirate Bay? We took a software that was open source. We installed it on one server in Mexico that we scrambled to get money for and then uh, it, basically we edited the code and made it a little bit better every time we needed some new features and then in the end that became the Pirate Bay. And you were based in Sweden or Finland at the time? I was based in Sweden. Most of the other people were in Sweden as well. One was in Mexico, a Swedish guy. But yeah, essentially Scandinavian and, and Pirate Bay was actually in Swedish in the beginning. The idea was to get people to talk about file sharing and the internet we were a group called Piratbyrån, the Bureau for Piracy, which was the guys who founded Pirate as one of the projects to have a discussion about the internet. So, so in a sense, it was a kind of similar, at least beginning to Skype, was it? Which was also founded in the Nordics? Yeah, but for different reasons, very much. That was very much like a Casa, which was the, right. let's say, the, the first Skype. Yeah. But I think that we came from an ideological standpoint we had a goal in mind and we also wanted to play with technology that was very much part of it whereas casa and skype was very much about finding a business model which was the power of pirate Bay was that it's never been any sort of business model that made it it was the opposite so you founded this thing with a couple of other techies you sort of three or four geeks one based in mexico how did that transform into you becoming one of the best known technologists and then outlaws you went to jail over this well, what's the story of pirate bay very briefly at least in your mind basically pirate bay grew and we as everyone else doing it, the it same. grew because people just used it yeah, yeah yeah the ultimate viral success yeah it grew steadily by itself just word by word uh mouth to mouth and what happened was that Let's say our competitors, I don't want to say that, but other people that ran file sharing services. So what were some examples of those? Mininova, Torrent Spy, right. Isohunt, some of these guys. Most of the other ones, also like a lot of smaller ones, they started closing down because they got a lot of legal threats. Mm. And when we started receiving them, basically we decided that we're going to fight these people. Not like in legal cases. Like We were totally sure that Pirate Bay was legal in Sweden, which it was. They changed the law. 
to actually uh, make sure that they could stick something on the Pirate Bay. But we replied to Hollywood and the music industry, telling them to fuck off and explaining why we don't care about them. So we were maybe a little bit more rebellious than the other ones. I wouldn't say the Pirate Bay was better technology because we used the same technology, BitTorrent. But we had a kind of rebellious side to us that we had a why, not only the how, but also the why to why we wanted to do this. And that basically telling people to fuck off always works as great PR. We didn't think about it that way, but we published all of these legal threats on Pirate Bay and people linked to that and people got interested in Pirate Bay because so we had- It became a political movement as much as a, a file sharing network. Yeah, and the pirate parties, of course, were founded after Pirate Bay's kind of, let's say, success. Um, Particularly based, in, based in, in Scandinavia. In Europe, I would say, quite big in Europe. When you look back at it now, I know you're ambivalent in some ways about the experience of Pirate Bay and its achievements, but what do you think was the greatest accomplishment of Pirate Bay? I would say it's that it made people think a little bit more than just swallowing whole propaganda from the copyright industry. So it's a kind of democratizer, or at least a, an information democratizer. It definitely, it's an eye-opener. And I think it's also kind of like, people always like the David Goliath story. And for and there are so many small, interesting things. Like we had this big raid against the Pirate Bay in 2006 or 2005, I can't remember. We had a few raids. But one of you the big mean the ones, police just came into your offices? Yeah, we didn't have offices. That's also like the misconception of Pirate Bay. So they Bay. came into your bedroom or something? No, they came into a data center where the machines were. Uh, yeah. And they basically took the machines away from Pirate Bay. Everything was, of course, not interesting because... It was all backed up anyway somewhere else. And it was also peer-to-peer, -peer, so you couldn't really... There was no large like streaming network it would be in today with thousands of machines. So it took three days before we got Pirate Bay up and running again. I think people liked that we got it up and running, but also like our reply to that was that half a year before, it was down for seven days because Gottfried from Pirate Bay got so drunk that they tripped over a cable and destroyed one of the routers. So that was a worse problem for us than 50 cops showing up, taking the machines. Like in reality, that's a bigger problem. And, you know, also then seeing that when Pirate Bay went down, almost half of the internet traffic in Europe disappeared. People realized how big this was and was run by three people with, I always say there was one drug addict, one alcoholic, and the third guy. And you're the third guy, I assume. Uh, you can assume that, yes. <laughs> you talk about the copyright industry. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer, I my rent, my clothing, my kids' education is paid for by the money that comes in for my books. What's wrong with the copyright industry? To begin with, copyright had the idea that you would protect the words written in, in the books, so you would be sure that the, that's the actual wording that the author intended. And I think that the biggest problem was when people started trading the copyrights, started buying the rights from authors, from creators, and started selling them as some sort of asset. Uh, asset. But does that really, have, give me some, some of the most egregious examples of that. Well, in the music industry, when you were selling CDs, like getting the money back from a CD for an artist would take you like 100,000 copies in some cases before you actually made any money because you had to pay back the record companies and all of these mm. things. And then they would still own all of the rights in the future. So like basically, I think that a lot of these companies are marketers that understood that a lot of people just want to get their music out so they made really crappy deals with them by putting this idea of becoming like a rock star in front of them like give them a lot of drugs give them you know whatever they want and, and let them throw tvs out of the hotel room and you pay a little bit and then you make billions of them and you keep 99 percent of the money basically yourself as a, that's the dream of the copyright industry to basically abuse the same people the authors the creators with the internet, we had the opportunity of like just cutting out this really evil middleman, which is the copyright 
markets holders. So it was the dream of the internet, disintermediation on a kind of both a moral and economic sense. Yeah, and also by having less middlemen, you could also have more access to most people so that we could, at least for me, I'm I'm not going to talk for everyone in the parapet because we have really different political beliefs, all of us. But for me, it was really a way of getting rid of the class society, not getting the class society copied to the internet because with the internet and access to all information for everyone for free would just be like a greatest classless society we have, which was a potential we had, but I don't really see it anymore. I know it's hard to generalize on this, but what was the reaction of artists, of musicians, of writers, of journalists, of filmmakers to Pirate Bay? Well, very mixed, I would say. Most of the people I've met, I only met like maybe 10 people in my life that were upset with me. But if Including you, myself. Yeah, but I don't think you're so upset with me. But you're definitely on the list of the few people that were upset because most other people would rather have a problem with basically their labels. So you hate your label, you hate your publisher, you hate your movie studio. So in a sense, it was just a kind of karma, was it? That the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Also, I think a lot of people that are in the creative industry also copy themselves a lot. That's Mm. kind of how you make your own art to copy from someone else and you remix. But Peter, there's copying and copying. There's taking an idea and developing it. And then there's digitally copying a song and not paying for it. Those are different things, aren't they? Yes and no. If you look at any big artist, music artist today, they would have copied all of their plugins for the Cubase like mm. that they're making. And then, you know, I always had this view that if you're making money from someone else's work, of course you should pay for it. But those are not the people that we wanted to target with Pirate Bay. They were more normal people. And we never said that, you know, there doesn't need to be a new business model or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, all of these industries showed that the industries thrived from having more copies. So like the more piracy, the more money you, the industry would make. But it wouldn't go to the record companies. They would go more directly to the artists and by people going to gigs because they get more interest and more engaged with music or with books and so on. So it created, let's say, a bigger market instead of like the closed market. So you have like the bigger one and then there would be more money into the industry. But it wouldn't go to the same people as before, which was probably the big problem with this. Most of the bigger artists, the bigger authors, they were just happy being read. I know Paolo Coelho and other people put up their stuff for free on the Pirate Bay themselves. I've been approached by some people that were upset that we didn't put up their stuff on Pirate Bay. And I had mm. to explain to them how, that they could do it themselves. Yeah, I remember the first time I met Amanda Palmer, she was a little bit upset that we didn't promote her music on Pirate Bay, which is an interesting thing because she really understood the power of that. But did you promote some stuff over others? Was there Were there artists or musical styles or genres that you promoted over other things was it an was pirate bay or is pirate bay an editorial product as no well? no th- that was also one of the key things with pirate bay was that we only took down things that didn't have the right description you could upload a virus if you wanted to if it said it was a virus that's okay mm. the only thing we took away was basically child porn Never happened, really, because people wouldn't upload that to a public space like that. Although child porn, there there is a movement in Scandinavia to legalize child porn as well, isn't there? Rather Holland, I would say, than mm. Scandinavia. Blame the Dutch. Yeah. So, Peter, you were a young technologist. You're still a young, relatively young technologist. I'm 40. Yeah, that's pretty young. You had a vision, an idea, a dream of democratizing culture, of using technology to do it. And in a sense, you succeeded. I mean, Pirate Bay became one of the best-known platforms for the exchange of content. And yet it didn't quite work out in the way you expected, did it? Both yes and no. I 
travel way too much and I go to some countries that don't have a market and people will come up to me and speak perfect English and explain to me how important Pipe has been for their getting access to, let's say, Photoshop so that they can get into graphics and now they have a high paying job because of that and they're super happy or they learned to speak English so that they could get a job as a support engineer somewhere and they downloaded this and this. And people are always coming up to me when I travel someplace to explain this. And these are always to countries that don't they're not interesting for these big companies to be have a mm. market in. So for me, that's a really big success. So in a sense, it's still democratized culture in a way that gay people access in uh, underprivileged people in smaller markets opportunity to access the dominant culture, the language, the entertainment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, in one way, yes. And then on the other way, I also don't like what Pipe has become because it's now become like a... When we started, we had this... We made a decision that when Pirate Bay turns 10 years old, we would close it down because we always complained about the technologies that were before and the places that were before. We mm. didn't want to become like a behemoth, like a monopoly. So it's like the line from the Who song, you die before you get old. Yeah, exactly. And also like, because we were sued all the time, I think it would be much cooler that we just decided we're going to close down on this date. Yeah. It's not up to you. That's just the date. shut the whole thing down and say, yeah. we've done this for 10 years and we're leaving this and stage And also now. really important that it's not easy to replace technology if you have like a behemoth that people are using because it's like with Facebook, making a new Facebook that is like a better technology than Facebook is not Mm -hmm. the question anymore because it's all about the user base. And Pirate Bay has become exactly the same. Like all of the people that are into piracy, they use the Pirate Bay, 95% of them. And if you would shut down the Pirate Bay, there would be such a void that people would have to go to some new place. And you're saying that Pirate Bay even today has a huge user base. Yeah, it's extremely big. It never really declined in usage so what's the most eye-catching stat about today about pirate bay about the amount of people use it how it like today it would be like five percent of the traffic of the internet and then what would be that compared to say youtube or netflix i think netflix a little bit bigger but that's just because they have so why are netflix or hulu or youtube or google or facebook why aren't they buying you not you because you're no longer part of it but why aren't they buying they don't have to First of all, there's no business model to it. They would only buy it to close it down because they have deals with someone else. They would get sued. I know that when Google bought YouTube, people think that YouTube was started by Google, but they bought YouTube. uh, And before they bought it, they made a deal with all of the Hollywood studios that they wouldn't get sued if they buy it. Well, YouTube began as not that different from Pirate Bay in some ways. Much, much worse because they host material. Plus, they knew what they were doing. They cared about doing it for money. So... For me, it's like always the funny thing is like, we made it so that no one was interested in, in uh, putting money on the table for us. Actually, one time we tried putting Pirate on the stock exchange of Sweden. Mm. There was a guy who wanted to buy it. But then we had a lot of regulations that we wanted everyone to only be able to buy one share. And, you know, you have a company called the Pirate on the Swedish stock exchange. It was trolling, basically. So let's personalize this a little bit, Peter. You, uh, because you may not be Julian Assange or Edward Snowden, but your narrative is an interesting one. What happened, particularly to you, that's such a, a striking and, from your point of view, I assume, rather disturbing narrative? What happened with? With you. I mean, you, you went to jail, right? Yeah. You became this public enemy number one, I guess, in a sense, in Sweden. You became the 
the epitome of an internet pirate and you got the book thrown at you by the law. Is that fair? Yeah, but also, like, I went to jail. I got a few hundred letters per day, most of them. How long did you go to jail for? I ended up spending six months in jail. Why? What was the... Aiding with aiding with possible copyright infringement. So it's basically enabling stealing online. It's not stealing, Andrew, you know this. I know, but I'm yeah. saying, I'm putting it in everyday language. No, but it's, it's very different from stealing, because stealing well, basically derives someone. Yeah. And it was like aiding with aiding, which is like uh, never so happened So aiding before. the aiders. Yeah. So you're not actually aiding. No, we're aiding the aiders, which is like, mm-hmm. let's call it the stretch. So you're the only person they could really find, is that they couldn't get the aiders, so they got the person who aided the aiders. Yeah, which was not a crime. They just made it into a crime. If you look at like the whole court case in Sweden, it was the chairman of the pro-copyright society was the judge in the case. The juror members were running record companies and were members of the political parties that wanted to ban file sharing in Sweden. It was policemen who did the investigation, was employed by Warner Brothers and NBC Universal during the investigation. It was a lot of, let's say, uh, embarrassing moments. For so them. in your mind, the whole system was pretty much rigged? The legal case, yes. But then if you look at the rest of the case, when you talk, I get the feeling that you say I was public enemy number one, but everywhere I go, people are happy to see me. Well, everyone loves public enemy number ones, don't they? I mean, at least uh, they're interesting. Yeah, but it's not only that, because everyone was a user of Pirate Bay. Most people that I meet still are like users mm. or have been using it. And they like the fight, they like the David Goliath thing. I think the media industry, controlling a lot of like what was being published, they didn't like us and they wanted us to look bad. At the same time, people in general liked us and because they were fans of what we're doing. They liked the style of us telling the white, rich Hollywood people to go fuck themselves, that we wanted to tell them that Sweden is not part of the US and if you wanted to become part of US law, you have to invade us mm. with some other countries that you don't like with what they're doing. And just the whole style was very appealing to people. So people in general like me. I would say. Well, you are a very likable guy. Thank you. Even if I don't approve of everything you've done. So you went to jail, and I think the interesting twist in the narrative here, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, and I'm sure you won't let me put words into your mouth. I wouldn't say that you've had your own digital road to Damascus moment, but you've certainly changed your opinion both about the internet and even Pirate Bay. When did you come out of jail? It's like four years ago. I think. Uh, over the last few years, you've changed. Is that fair? No, I think the internet changed. I think that's why we've been on opposite sides of this before. Oh, you mean you and I? Yeah, and I think that I had this idea of what the internet could become, and we were on a path. And then it you kind mean of this slowly sort of this ideal of democratization? Yes, and uh, the potential of uh, internet making things better. Mm. And then it slowly, slowly became the opposite. And was there now, a moment when? You saw what Facebook was doing when you saw how powerful Google was. Was there a moment when you realized, oh my God, this is really going wrong? I have a friend who doesn't like when I tell this story, but he was on Facebook. He's a music video producer, or he was at the time. And he uploaded his music videos to Facebook. They took them down because he didn't have the copyright for the music in the music Mm. videos. And he explained to Facebook that I made these videos, the artist. So they're his own work. His work. And they said, because it included music from someone else, it was copyrighted. And it's like, but this is my portfolio. So he uploaded them again. And Facebook turned off his possibility of uploading videos and said, we told you not to have these on Facebook. They were not upset Mm -hmm. that he uploaded them or like, because it would be potential copyright infringement, but he didn't do what they told him. So then he changed profile picture to basically a huge cock and said like, fuck Facebook. So they banned him from Facebook And what happened when he got banned for Facebook for a while is that he no longer had a normal social life because 
everyone had started inviting people to birthday parties and updating people to all everything going on in their life on Facebook. So he could literally sit on a Saturday evening not being at a party because people didn't invite him because he was not on Facebook and they didn't know. He just vanished. And they didn't only delete his account. They deleted pictures that he was tagged in on other people's accounts. Maybe they wouldn't do it today anymore, but... So that woke you up. That made you realize that this thing has gone profoundly wrong. They erased him from outside of the internet as well, not only from Facebook, but basically it affected his life outside of internet dramatically to the level that his friends no longer talk to him the same way because they just assumed you invite everyone on an event on Facebook, everyone will come. So what was most troubling to you about that anecdote? Was it the sort of the new authoritarianism of companies like Facebook? Was it the fact that they could ruin people's lives willfully without even any thought? Because presumably on the Facebook side, it was some small-time bureaucrat somewhere making these decisions. It wasn't exactly Mark Zuckerberg, right? Or maybe it's because of Mark Zuckerberg, they made that kind of decision. Or even an algorithm, right? They may not even have been a person behind it. No, so for me, it was the thing that was troubling was that we somehow slided into this situation where this would happen, have such effects on everyday life. And we never had a discussion or never had uh, someone deciding about the rules and regulations. And every time you talked about regulating the internet, it was not about how to regulate the big corporations and how to get users' rights. In Finland, we made the internet human right. The only country in the world that I know that made it a human right. After and when you say we in Finland, I know you split your time between Sweden and Finland, so you're kind of both Swedish and Finnish. I'm not Swedish. I'm Norwegian-Finnish. Uh, Let's say I'm Nordic. Yeah, um, you're definitely Nordic. Yeah, but I think that the focus has always been on regulating what you cannot do on the internet and what you cannot do in society, because basically mm. internet and society, it's the same thing. It's just a different medium for the same discussions and, and everything. So for me, that was the big troubling situation where we didn't have the rights as users anymore. We didn't have the normal rights and we didn't talk. The discourse was always on how to ban things users were doing instead of making sure that we had user rights uh, to freedom of speech, ownage of our own data, controlling our own identity. One of the guys we've had on this show, John Borthwick, the CEO of Betaworks, a well-known investor in New York, He thinks that there isn't that much difference between Facebook and China. Are you suggesting the same thing, that they're both sort of intrinsically authoritarian? Of course they are. The problem is that we willingly select to be on Facebook, whereas to be in China, you either have to move there or you have to be born there. I think Facebook is on a level that's a little bit worse, because in China at least... Worse than China? In some levels. Like, again, you can't really compare apples uh, to pears. But in, in many ways, you have this idea that Facebook is your friend in China... Much like in Stasi, Germany, people knew who their enemy was. You were aware of being spied on. You were thinking about being spied on. When you talk to people, you know how to behave. There are certain codes in both China as in in Stasi, Germany, and you know who you can talk to and what you can't talk about. On Facebook, you don't think about it. It just happens. And that is really problematic. Are the Facebook guys worse than the copyright industry? Are they equivalent or are they different? Is it apples to oranges again? Facebook is a little bit worse because they meddle so much more with democracy, but they operate in the same space because they just see money rather than uh, social impact and social responsibilities. I think social responsibility for Zuckerberg is more like that he doesn't have to go to Congress or to the European Parliament and be held responsible for things. He doesn't really want to have social responsibilities on Facebook. So 10 years ago, you know, everyone talked about Facebook being behind the trigger of the Arab Spring, of democratizing movements all over the world. Today, however, we seem to have a shift towards authoritarianism, whether it's 
Putin, Trump, Erdogan, Bolsonaro, what's happening in Italy, Poland, Hungary. Do you see a connection between sort of the corruption, at least in your mind, of the digital dream and the crisis of democracy around the world? I think with internet and globalization combined, we live in a world where basically everything is becoming the same in each country. And the problem is that you're going to take the worst of each country and, and use that instead of the best of each country for some reason. I think that the success of Trump basically bred this situation for Bolsonaro and other people to become like the, you know, taking control of different countries. And this all comes down to the internet being used the way it is. I wouldn't say the technology is responsible, but I think that... But the two things that are connected and they're, and they're working together in parallel is a sort of a complex ball of yarn where they're sort of tied together. Is that fair? Definitely. And also, like, I think that people still have in their mind that it's something else, that internet is some sort of liberating medium that uh, gives you some sort of freedom. It's very much like an air... I can't believe you, you, the co-founder of Pirate Bay... One of the platforms that enabled this is actually saying that. I mean, that's a fairly radical shift in your thinking, isn't it? I think it's uh, the shift of the internet rather than my world. I, I, th I went to a really interesting uh, festival in Copenhagen called the Tech Fest, Tech Festival. And we had a sit down with 150 people one of the days. These are all people that are entrepreneurs or activists or people interested in social justice, people interested in technologies and how technologies can change the world. And basically, we were sitting in this room people from big corporations, big media industries, and everyone agreed that the internet got kind of out of hand. Mm. So I'm definitely not alone in this kind of view of the thing. But I think our own naivety is the reason for all of this, because we didn't regulate, we didn't decide the rules. It's uh, quite striking that the co-founder of Pirate Bay would be saying that the solution is regulation. I've always been in favor of regulation if it's for the usage of the personal individual using the internet or that not being different than uh, being a member of society. This is such a complicated problem, putting the horse before the car. What comes first, fixing the internet or fixing democracy? What should our priority be? Should we be more worried about this corruption of the internet or more worried about the corruption of democracy? Or are they so kind of bound up with one another that to fix one will inevitably mean fixing the other? I think either we fix it and it's hard work or we wait until it crash. It will have to crash at some point. Crash because... democracy or the internet? Now, what's the difference? Well, hasn't it crashed? Some people would argue with Trump and Brexit. No, no, it hasn't crashed. It can be much worse. That's like the lessons we should take from that. How could it crash? Give me some really nightmarish scenarios. Look at the climate crisis. You have people like Trump with so much power, Bolsonaro with so much power, fucking up the world even more, faster. So definitely, that's a troubling situation. Willfully, almost, as if they uh, Oh, yes. They want to frack the world, and they want to turn just cut out everything from the Amazon. This is a business model. It's good for them. It's good for their wallets. And they don't really care about the implications for the next generations and so on. This is directly a problem because of what we did with uh, fucking democracy so much up with the internet and the globalization. I, I say as you do as well. I, I wouldn't blame the internet for all of this, of course. It's because we use the internet the way we do. It's the problem of the people using the internet and the problem of people in society. But I think we have to look at internet as a much more integral part of society than we're doing today. We wouldn't regulate phone calls the same way we do with the internet. We wouldn't monitor every single phone call because phones could be used for terrorists to plan an attack. We wouldn't do it as easily as we do with the internet. 
where you get so much more information about everything. We just have this grand idea that if you just monitor people, if you just collect information, all of these things, you violate all basic privacy of people, then you can probably catch some terrorists. If you look at how you deal with other things in society, postal, mail, or phone calls, we have a totally different view. And it's because we still think in the back of our minds that internet is some sort of medium for selling goods on eBay or just getting the new Netflix movies or something. We look very much down on what it has become and we don't really put enough importance to it, which is also why I think we don't regulate it the way we do. We regulate parts of things on top of the internet. So more regulation as the Europeans are doing, antitrust, regulation around data, privacy, regulation on taxes, regulation on the accountability of these platforms. Is that the kind of regulation you're discussing? Either that, which is the sane way of doing it, or we have a revolution, which I don't see is happening. I would prefer revolution because it would be much better. Yes, we should take the internet ownership back, like we should redistribute the resources. Why does Denmark have more IP addresses than you know all of Africa? We mimicked all of the shit in real-life society on top of the internet. So taking the internet back, I mean, people like Tim Berners-Lee are now trying to do that. And it's not just a pipe dream. I mean, some of the pioneers of the original architecture of the internet are dedicated to that. And I wouldn't say you're necessarily a pioneer of the architecture, but you're certainly an influential figure. Do you think more and more people are trying to do this? I think people understand it better. And going just back to the Copenhagen thing, like the 150 people that met up in that room, influential people. Everyone was on the same page. That Who else was there? Give me some examples of influential people. I'm not sure I should. They have to say it themselves. They signed okay. a letter. It's a Copenhagen letter. Oh, okay. You can read it. It's really nice. It's just a formulated letter of things we should think about. Maybe you can put a link in your, your podcast to this letter and let it speak for... And for you are... But I, what I wanted to say is also like, you say like Tim Berners-Lee and other people are talking about taking the internet back. When I was talking about these things before, I was looked at as kind of a rebel for doing this. But I I think people started to realize that the views I had and the scares we had 15 years ago about who would control the internet, who creates algorithms, who decides what, you know, like Google with their page rank. There's a democratic deficit if you don't have transparency into these questions, like why did Facebook decide to filter out this and this news thing? We need to regulate them so that we know what they're doing. We need transparency in these areas. And could the technology of file sharing networks like Pirate Bay, could that be a solution to some of this? For example, filtering out fake news? Yes and no. I think that we shouldn't put too much hope into technologies fixing the problems of technologies. I think that's a pipe dream. Even blockchain? Blockchain is just like the worst of it because that's yeah. not... Yeah, I think that's like a ultra-libertarian dream. Or of Bitcoin. I think it's just like, besides the CO2 emissions from that industry, which is right. just insane, it's also like a pyramid scheme from the people who had Bitcoins in the beginning and the people hoping to become the next guys who have a lot of Bitcoins. It doesn't bring any value. The only thing that Bitcoin prices surging has done is that people, the activists that want to use Bitcoin and other things, they can't really afford doing it because, you know, the prices fluctuate up and down. So the idea of using this distributed, decentralized cryptocurrencies for activists, which was kind of the sales point at the beginning, because of the capitalism on top of that had kind of fucked up that industry or like the activism's possibilities. It's like fixing the system from within the system with the system's regulations is really really hard to do and i don't think a lot of people would think that that's a sane idea to do so like maybe we're not going to have a revolution but if we don't think about what the potentials uh, we could do with the revolutions then we don't really know what we want to reshape society to so peter you proudly describe yourself as a nordic we're talking here in oslo 
You spent part of your life in Sweden, part of your life in Finland. You, you obviously spent a lot of time in Denmark as well. Can't the Nordics lead on this? You talked about, you know, this Copenhagen movement where people are trying to rebuild. Can't we take the models from Finland or Sweden or Norway in political terms and get this to reform not only society, but also the internet? Hillary Clinton, in a famous debate with Bernie Sanders in the last presidential election, when Bernie started talking about Denmark, said, well, we can't all be Denmark. Can't we all be Denmark here? Definitely. And actually, Denmark is a good example because they're having kind of the Danish government now is really interested in becoming like an ethical data haven. They want to do more ethical tech. That's like a business model for them. And even though I'm not super into business models in general, I think it's a much better business model than basically everything else right now, which is unethical business models. And they've realized that this is a potential. But the problem with politics compared to technology is that technology is moving more and more rapidly. That's kind of the idea of technology. So when we finally have AI in a few years that is super interesting as a technology speaking, politics will be and needs to be slow although to actually kind of grasp the situation. Just as we had a slow food movement, we need a slow politics movement. No, we have a slow politics movement. And that's a problematic as well because you can't over-regulate. You can't be too fast with politics because you always lose something if you don't think things true because it's not for just today it's for very much into the future as well right technology you can create for today and if it doesn't work you just like do something else can't do that with politics there's too much at stake and that's a problem so i think that technology and politics aren't really always super compatible in that way and that we need to figure out how to find kind of like the missing link in between When are we going to get a book out of you, Peter, on all this, on your life and on your views on capitalism, on the digital revolution, on Pirate Bay, on Facebook? So I wrote 5,000 pages so far, and it's way too much. I have to cut it out. And you began that in prison? Uh, No, way before. In prison, I wrote a sitcom. And did that ever get published? No, I'm going to, after I'm done with the current TV series I'm doing, that's the next project. And all this writing, has it changed your opinion of the copyright industry? When you have a bestseller, are you going to put it all on Pirate Bay? I hope someone else is going to put it on the Pirate Bay so I can sue them, because I know everything about it. And that's great PR. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. But please stick around as Andrew will be right back to conclude this episode with his five takeaways. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. 
Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview. As I suggested in my introduction, the zeitgeist certainly has shifted. As Peter Sunday so poignantly put it, I haven't changed. It's the internet that's changed. And what's changed most of all, he insists, is that Silicon Valley's winner-take-all companies have turned out to be at least as bad as the companies that they replaced. So, as he argues, the surveillance capitalists at Facebook aren't any better than the surveillance authoritarians in China. Indeed, Facebook might even be worse because it has the gall to pretend it's our friend. Meanwhile, he says, YouTube is worse than Pirate Bay in terms of aiding and abetting the theft of online content. Perhaps the biggest failure of the digital revolution, Sunday argues, is its failure to democratize. Like so many other guests on our show, Sunday sees a connection between the rise of authoritarianism and the dominance of the internet. So, on the internet, what's been lost are the rights of the users while what's been lost in society are the rights of citizens. Therein lies the tragedy so far of the digital revolution. Like so many other revolutions in history, its outcome is the antithesis of the intention of its founders. Rather than more online or political democracy, what we are seeing are the rise of both winner-take-all internet companies and entrenched authoritarian governments. So what to do? Can we rely on new technologies like blockchain to re-establish the original democratizing ideals of the digital revolution? No. You see, Sunday, who of course co-founded the deeply disruptive file-sharing platform Pirate Bay, no longer believes that technology is the answer to social or political problems. Describing Bitcoin as a scam, he argues that tech can't fix technology's problems. It's just more of the same, more unaccountable billionaires, more tulip crazes, more exploited online users. But what we forgot to do first time around, Sunday says, is regulate. That's the real headline of this interview, especially coming from the guy who co-founded the libertarian fantasy of Pirate Bay. That's the wisdom which Sunday has picked up over the last couple of decades. We forgot to regulate. So that's what we've got to do now. Regulate the winner-take-all companies. Regulate surveillance capitalism. Regulate fake news. Regulate racism and misogyny. Yes, of course, there's a poignant morality tale in Sunday's personal history. But I think there's also a cultural lesson here. As a guy who has lived his whole life in Sweden, Norway, and Finland, he is the quintessential Nordic. He even spent a year in a Swedish jail writing a screenplay. And it's his open-mindedness, his ability to change his mind and admit his wrong, which is what gives his story such credibility. Not all Nordics have Sunday's strength of character, of course, or his propensity to take risks. But Sunday is right to argue that tech can't fix tech's problems. Only humans can. Humans with the civic virtue of guys like Peter Sunde. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. 
If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day. Next week, we examine the relationship between political democracy and economic globalization with Ian Bremer, the best-selling author of Us and Them, The Failure of Globalization. I hope you'll join me then.